Welcome to Extended Clip, episode 43. I'm one of your hosts, Eddie Averill. I'm Malcolm Baum. I'm JT White. Today we're going to be talking about The Aviator's Wife, the 1981 Eric Romare film, and Castle Freak, the 1995 film by Stuart Gordon. Uh, Malcolm, you picked out this double feature. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your selection here? Well, um, Romer or Romare, you know, I, I always pronounce his name wrong. But, uh, you know, he had a hundredth birthday. And that's a hundred's a big number. So I wanted to give him a big salute, review one of his uh, maybe little underseen movies. Not underseen, but it's not um, as popular as his, you know, classics during the French New Wave. And we also have Stuart Gordon, who just recently deceased. So I just wanted to give a salute to the cap to both of these guys. I didn't really have much connective tissue otherwise. Um, my, my connective tissue was that it both involved following women, although watching the aviator's wife, he's mostly following a man, but he does follow a woman too. He does do that too. (laughs) Yeah. No, I was going to say, despite the title being the aviator's wife, he's mainly following the aviator. Yeah. And, um, you know, in pairing these two, an incidental crossover happened, you know, they're both about relationship issues too. And that's a, you know, that's classic. So, um, of course, yeah, that's, those are, those are my reasons. The foundation of romance cinema. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. I'm just so romantic. And that's why I chose Castle Freak. uh... Yeah. This episode's about romance in the age of Corona. (laughs) Yeah. I'm holding a rose in my teeth right now (laughs) while I record. The Aviator's Wife, you know, opens on a scene in a mail room, which, you know, the mail, we will come back to at the very end of the movie, but that's where we see our opening credits. In the beginning, you see uh, our protagonist, Francois, alongside a couple other characters, and you're not it kind of takes a while to parse what, like, the foundation of the story is going to be. But over the first 15 minutes, you see him try to write a letter to a woman and then you see another guy try to write a letter to that woman and slide it under her door and then is invited in and you know he tells her that he's leaving her for his wife and as we see them exit her apartment uh, we see the first person we saw uh, watching them and that's when you kind of get cued in to this movie and how it operates on a sense of uh following a character following one or more other characters yeah this movie really it's uh it's main thing it's doing here is doing character perspective i feel and how it will shift from character perspective to you know maybe uh reveal something that you might have not thought before because you're in this character's perspective and there's kind of like just this nice um almost passive style to it that really just lets kind of like the character work come through yeah, that's one thing that I feel like goes to some extent about the connective tissue between the films because there is a large extent of following happening. There are a lot of – I mean, Romare, Ricky Romeo loves to fucking talk and uh, the, they're just those Frenchies are just gabbing up a storm in his damn movies. But I thought it was equally impressive just how much of it is fixated on – like what Malcolm was saying, those perspectives. And I think a lot of that point of view also comes back in Castle Freak and the stalking that happens there. So true. Oh, yeah, for sure. 
the the connective tissue that you had made initially, Malcolm, between these two films of like watching people is, you know, it, it's not as much the foundation of Castle Freak, but there are a lot of moments within Castle Freak that give off the same feeling that this film does throughout its entire runtime. Yeah, I think those are some of Castle Freak's best moments, too. Oh, for sure. But we'll get to that. Yeah. We're too excited. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so we see Francois then, like, track this man down, this aviator, uh, and, like, he follows him for a while, who is, you know, taking the bus with a woman, and you get a really great scene of him taking the bus following this guy where you just kind of hear the sounds of, you know, the city. It's just a very basic, like, bus ride city soundscape, kind of like the one in, uh, not or not as sparse as the one in The Devil, probably. You know, that's uh, this same area years before. This is more of an immersive sound design than that film. But a similar feeling, and then he meets the uh, the 15-year-old girl who he's going to hang out with for the next 45 minutes or so. The, the middle chunk of this film, really where it's at its best, in my opinion, where he and this young woman, uh, he's kind of teamed up with her to do his following work. And uh, their little games that they play around telling the truth to each other while he's stalking this uh, what he thinks is a couple is really just my favorite thing I've seen from Eric Romare. Yeah, it's really fun. This kind of uh, strange relationship where you have this 15 year old girl who, by you know all intents and purposes, seems to be smarter than our you know our main character here, and it's just kind of like coaxing him and kind of playing along with his uh, little detective story that he's built for himself, just to really entertain herself. And I, I think she even says so much that you know just kind of like this. Sometimes a flirtation could be rejuvenating and, you know, it's just that. Yeah, that like 40 minutes that they spend at the park, uh, they just like, I don't know, it's so lived in and they're so deep into these conversations that Romare gives them. But then he'll cut away to someone walking by them in the park, you know, a group of kids or an old woman or something like that. And it just injects so much life into the scene to sustain it for another five minutes of them just talking to each other. It's beautiful. I feel like that's where Romare really shines through is the like conveying a sense of ambiguity in relationships. I mean, I think mm -hmm. a large extent of his other works is focusing on like couples that have had like I, I, the I mean, obviously, there are couples in this who have been seeing each other for a little bit but are about more long-standing couples. But I like how he's able to have these little dances where they're not quite sure the motives. And, like, for someone who might be put off by, like, his movies because it's just a bunch of, like, uh, white people talking, I feel like he keeps it intriguing because he keeps developing the perspectives and it's constantly shifting there, the relationships between the two characters. Yeah, and like yeah. the way he portrays like these relationships and these people's perspectives is that, you know, what he'll do is that he'll show it in a way where everyone kind of gets a chance to say their piece or, you know, be represented in a good light and in a bad light. Like, yeah, there's there's a lot of ambiguity and just a lot of uh, just kind of like moral flip-flopping that pretty much most of his characters do. And you could definitely see it in this one. 
Yeah, I think that like the the flip flopping that goes on all of these like games of <laughs> mental gymnastics that these characters are playing to justify their actions or like he the characters even talk out loud about like, you know, making scenarios up in their head after having a dramatic conflict with someone and like the internal lives of just like relationship <laughs> conflicts that run through these people's heads is like it's kind of sickening. It's kind of like I get where people are coming from when they wholly dismiss the cinema of Romero or like Hong Sang Soo or any of these filmmakers who just kind of depict people talking conversation and like relationship kind of stuff. Uh, but I don't know. I think Romare he can be a bit hit and miss for me with when it works, but when it feels at its most both realistic and poetic simultaneously. I think he like really reveals himself as kind of a master. And this is one of those films for me, especially in kind of this middle segment. Mm -hmm. The thing that I feel like Romare and Hong are really good about doing and Romare, especially in this film, because at one point uh, Lucy and Francois like sort of acknowledge that, they're so wrapped up in their own personal lives and have that sort of commentary on like the level of self-absorption you get like mm -hmm. oh no it's not oh like not unaware of itself in a way where i feel like that would lend it to be more pretentious it's like fully immersing yourself in that sort of indulgence and i feel and by being consciously aware of it i feel like it absolves it of a great deal of pretension Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's highly critical of everything that's going on, too. But at, while at the oh, same yeah. time, you know, has a, a stream of, I think, sympathy for these characters, too, that really, you know, makes it you know, a morally complex and nuanced. So his style in this is very, like, matter of fact and uh, objective and kind of unassuming, but he's able to so cleverly stage so many of these scenes especially when it's in this mode of following you know uh especially when him uh francois and uh what's her name uh lucy are sitting across the park across the pond from the couple that he's following and he's able to stage them in the deep background like just enough so you get kind of an underlying bit of suspense that's driving uh this just kind of conversation between these two people who are you know sem semi flirting with each other while just like walking around taking a lazy day off it seems yeah it's it's funny about romer's characters except for um uh what do you call it Anne, our lead character it seems like no one's like working like everyone's just, you know, just <laughs> walking about just you know going to the cafe you know, like three times a day, stuff like that. Really like a bohemian Parisian lifestyle. And you know what? I mean, I, I part of my attraction to him in the first place as a filmmaker is kind of like um, maybe, sort of, maybe sort of the same reason I liked Woody Allen when I was 14 is because uh, like of the allure of the city and like kind of like, I don't know, just that type of lifestyle, I guess. It's, you know, it's kind of appealing in, in a certain way. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I wish I had just had all day to stroll around, get a pastry, flirt with women who are of age in my of instance. Age, yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, it's, it's Ameri definitely... American of age. American <laughs> of age, too. 18. Yeah, of course. 18 and up. No, this French, French bullshit. <laughs> yeah, because everyone's just fine with that in the movie, which is, like, funny. But that, hey, that's France for yeah. you. 
Yeah. No, that I mean, hey, that's that's uh, legal in France. That's the law. Uh, <laughs> which. Yeah. No, age of consent in France is fifteen. They didn't have an age of consent until like recently. I had just read something off of Wikipedia, mind you, that said that a bunch of like French, uh, like leftist intellectuals were calling for the abolition of that, even when it was already like only fifteen. Damn. Well, that might be true too. Well. Yeah. Hey. That's that's bad. <laughs> that's a big no no in my book. If if you're asking me, that's a no go. But that's why you got to separate the artist from the art, whether it's Romare or Woody Allen or or Lacan or Stuart or Gordon or Stuart Gordon using a sixteen year old in Gordon. Castle Freak. It's true. It's true. Um, you know, let's move past that. <laughs> we dug a little too deep there. Yeah. Just a bit, just a bit. Uh, you know, sometimes you're digging and then you don't realize that what you're digging is a grave for yourself when you think you're digging <laughs> for something cool. Well, hey, I think I think that's that happens in The Aviator's Wife, right? Because um, um, <laughs> it's our, true. Our boy Francois, of course, he's named Francois. Just meant to m- represent all French men. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he's he, like ultimately he's getting in the way of his own happiness, right? Like he's overreacting mm-hmm. to certain things. Or even with, you know, the, um, you know, 15-year-old girl he meets, Lucy, he's ignoring her kind of and, you know, too focused on uh, Anne and whatnot. So he's, you know, he is, he has opportunities to be happy, but he seems to, he seems to gravitate towards the suffering and self-destruction. Mm-hmm. So as he self-destructs, uh, we see, uh, first he like tries to just like give up and Lucy wants to keep uh like hanging out with him and they they go into a coffee shop to wait for uh this couple to come out of a lawyer's office that they walked into together and that's where they have their last you know long conversation uh and she leaves just giving him her address where apparently you know she lives next to where he works so he's gonna go drop her a note about what happens at the end of this and then he realizes, or he comes to find out that it was his sister uh, when he goes and visits his girlfriend once again for kind of the final quarter of this movie. Back at Anne's apartment, uh, them kind of talking all of this out, coming to realize, you know, the the misunderstandings that fueled the plot and also uh, them coming to terms with their relationship kind of for the last 20 minutes or so of the film. Yeah, and it's it's there's nothing too pleasant there. Oh, not at all. And it doesn't really <laughs> resolute in any way that's satisfying. It's pretty much just as like painfully ambiguous as it you know when it began, if not even more so. Um, yeah. And like I like I love that scene because of how it like it it seems like it's about to end. You know, uh, Francois is about to leave, and then you know something pulls him back, and like just kind of like the crampness of like this small apartment. And kind of how you get mm-hmm. just everything in like this small space it makes it more intensive yeah i love that both times you see Anne's apartment it's such like a dark and dreary like contrast to the rest of the film that just takes place like outside a bright lovely day exploring the city something i yearn for <laughs> yeah but um much like you know much like the castle freak we just live in the darkness now like Anne and the castle freak <laughs> you think 
She says she wants to take a picture there, but oh, there's but no light. Yeah, it's nicer over here. Oui, la lumière n'est pas bonne. Oui, mais je voudrais cet arbre sur la photo. Oui, c'est c'est mon arbre fétiche. C'est quoi? It's my tree fetish. What? She says she has tree a fetish. She says she, she has, has a tree, tree fetish. fetish. Oh my oh, god, yeah. these French girls are crazier than I thought. We live in Castle Freak now. Um, <laughs> so they have it out, and when he kind of comes clean about what he had been doing, even though he doesn't fully, he at least reveals the part that he was talking to a fifteen-year-old girl. Uh, <laughs> uh, like, which she's yeah, like, she, nice. She's like, she's like, good. No, she's she's pretty bitter about it. No, she yeah. says that, but she's totally, you know, as she should be, very, you know, uh, annoyed with that at the least. Because <laughs> no, she yeah. says, uh, as he's leaving, she says, "Don't forget to write your little friend." <laughs> yeah, she's very condescending about it. And so he goes to write his little friend after he leaves her apartment. The final kind of scene of the movie. We see him go back to Lucy's house and you think, hey, you know what, maybe uh, maybe he was just too young to be with a real adult and it'll make sense for him to <laughs> hang out with a 15 year old. Uh, but then we see her kissing her presumably also teen boyfriend and he just like starts following the boyfriend after that. And it's someone he works with, too. It's yeah, yeah, it's someone he works with that we saw earlier in the film, and then he goes and just mails the the postcard that or the little uh, note that he wrote to her instead of slipping it under her door. Yeah, I like I like that ending. I think it's because it's it's uh, yeah. it shows you that it's an art house film, right? Because a romantic comedy, right? It would have went to Lucy's house, <laughs> and it's like you were the one for me the whole time, and then you know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you get the, the harsh, the you know, the bitter truth of reality, as you know. You know, he sees her, you know, smooching her boyfriend. But he kind of has, and, you know, you don't see him uh, really respond to that besides following the boyfriend. But just the fact that he mailed the letter seems like he has a semi-positive outlook on everything that went on. At least in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, he really cucks out in the end there, though. But (laughs) it's just like... He's a pussy, for sure. In a way that's true to his character entirely. Um, Mm -hmm. Oh, for sure. He's so pathetic. Like, that's, like, basically, his whole relationship with Anne is, like, Anne blatantly says so, like, I tolerate you. It's really, uh... Yeah. It's really just him and being pathetic And she, like, sees other desperate. people, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and she's, yeah, she's active, too, and, uh... He just wants to be with a cool girl who has her own apartment in the city, you know? Well, it's too too bad, pal. <laughs> you did it the wrong no, way. Uh, I, I really, I really love this film, and, like, Romero's style, as we said, is like very, you know, objective the way he shoots these people in conversation. But it's also just like, I don't know, uh, his compositions really sneak up on you with their beauty. You know, the the longer he lingers on an image, the more you realize uh, the attention that was put into the detail of every aspect of the frame. And he really is a, a master of composition and also like the precision of his editing, even though it seems as some scenes go on so long that it almost feels lazy. I feel like there are so many cuts in this film that just hit right at the exact moment during a very long take or during a very long scene where he's always just aware of where the audience's attention is at. It feels like, and yeah, it's a really fantastic movie. I'm going to say four and a half bullets. I'm going to go four and a half bullets as well. Like, like you said, with the editing, one thing I noticed that he does 
because things are retold to characters in this movie. Like we see an event happen and like, you know, Francois will describe the story. And I noticed like during those scenes, like he would just uh, stay hard on Lucy and we just get her reactions to that story. Cause like, that's where the new information is at in the movie. And it's just um, stuff like that is just real intelligent filmmaking. And this is, you know, I think one of his better films. Yeah. What do, you, what do you think, JT? I am also going to give this uh, four and a half bullets. I am a big fan of Romare. This is, I think, uh, number 12 for me. Um, and one of the best. Wait, your 12th favorite Romare? No, my 12th of his films in total. Oh, okay. <laughs> hey, I mean, I could. he has a lot of films. You know? Yeah, That's no. True. And they're all pretty. I, I like them all a lot. Really think that this one does an effective job with what you were saying in regards to the editing. I feel like showing off that while a lot of his films are focused on like conversation that's like poetic and not necessarily realistic, the point of view really lends itself to like, I don't know, I feel like Romare's oftentimes compared to like a very literary filmmaker and I think the way that he handles perspective in this and especially like there is a lot of ambiguity especially in the ending but I think you get the little mystery of Francois following uh, the aviator is solved in a way where there is some sort of sense of satisfaction there where you're along with him as you piece together oh he was with like his sister and they're in like a legal battle a little bit. So I don't know. He's really working on a lot of levels. This sharp fella. Um, it's a good one. <laughs> did you, did you watch any other, uh, Romare this week, JT? Yeah. I watched, uh, winter's tale. Is that one? That one's later in the career, right? Yeah. That's, uh, 92. It's in the, nice. has, how was that? He has a whole bunch of tales, uh, in there. Oh, <laughs> uh, nice. Uh, one for each season. Oh, A Tale of Winter, I also would say, is pretty top tier. I mean, Romare, like, pretty much all across the board, usually hits it for me. That one is about a young woman who is bouncing between two uh, bows. Uh, One beefcake, who is her hairdresser, uh, Max, and... um, she and she has like a child with a man that's shown at the beginning of the film where it was like five years ago, um, but she gave him the wrong address accidentally. So she winds up sort of in at a crossroads settling for two men, but she really loves uh, the father of her child, uh, Charles. And so she's cut between a beefcake and an intellectual and has to decide, <laughs> but re- is really waiting out uh, for Charles uh, to come along. And that one is really fixated a lot on the supernatural and like aspects mm. of chance and sort of like because uh, the 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 intellectual that she's wrapped up in, uh, he is like a Catholic, as one would anticipate from a Romare film. And is has a level of spirituality in that sense, but is very doubtful of her hope that Charles is ever going to see her again because he moved off to America and became like a chef 
and like there's no conceivable way of them finding each other again and uh ultimately in the end she he does wind up coming back into her life um and it ends on even a more ambiguous note than this and like less tidy and cleanly constructed but i really love that one as well how about you boys have you watched any other ricky romeo (laughs) uh yeah i mean it it had been years actually because i watched maybe four of his movies like maybe 2017 maybe 2016 even uh but today after the double feature i dipped my toes into a good marriage la beau marriage uh, (laughs) which is kind of the companion film to the aviator's wife i didn't like it as much honestly it's like it's pretty good i was gonna say i'm a little more hit and miss with romare I've never seen one that I've disliked, but they're either just like pretty good and mostly really nice to look at, but kind of boring or like really amazing. This one, unfortunately, was in kind of the former camp, but uh, there was some really good stuff in there. Um, It's about an art student who wants to get, you know, the premise sounds great because it's like about this art student who wants to give up the life of like fucking all of these married uh, men who have kids and get her own husband because she's like sick of, you know, having sex with married men. So she wants to, she wants to give up the cosmopolitan lifestyle and get into the, the trad wife mode. But the successful lawyer who she's trying to get down with is kind of being a bit elusive and he kind of sees her immaturity for what it is and uh so the whole film is kind of her struggle to win him over and it's it's entertaining in spots and boring in spots uh romare as i said is like a master of the form so just studying the that film on a formal level was like obviously informative for me uh but yeah not one of my favorites from him Malcolm, did you did you watch one this week? Yeah, I did. And, you know, uh, funny that you say, you know, you're hit and miss on him. I usually like his movies, although The Tree, The Mayor, and The Mediatek did not exactly connect with me. And it uh, it's definitely very different from a lot of his movies. I mean, first of all, there's, like, no sex in it. Like, there's no – it's not about sex or relationships at all, which is, like that's – that's pretty much most of his – I would say there's only a few of his movies that don't, you know, tackle that subject. And this one's about a, a socialist mayor in the small village France who wants to build up a, a media center, but there's opposition from more of the rural conservative types who want uh, um, nature to be preserved or whatever. And um, it's kind of shot like like a documentary almost. It has like some like docudrama style feel to it. Like, and it's kind of silly too. It just pretty much has a silly register the whole time. So it's like very didactic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even knowing his politics, it's not like an anti-socialist movie, although the socialist does get thwarted in the end. I will say that. But, um, damn. yeah, I don't know. It's just a lot of, like, political conversations with a focus on local politics, right? It sounds like a, a cool Frederick Wiseman movie, but it didn't exactly engross me. But, all right, I, I want to shout out The Green Ray, which I rewatched two weeks ago and is mm-hmm. probably, you know, in contention of, as one of my favorite movies of all time. Um yeah, that, that movie's really great. And uh, it was uh, co-written by um, Marie Riviere, who's, uh, you know, Anne in uh, The Aviator's Wife. And it was kind of like uh, more of like a... Romer said that he was influenced by Jacques Rivette while making this one. And it's a little bit more improvis- improvisational than 
his movies could feel sometimes, and it's it's uh-huh. a it's a great combination. Oh, the actress who plays yeah. Anne is also in uh, Winter's Tale uh, for just a little bit. Um, she has a little moment where she pops in. Mm-hmm. She's great. Big fan. Damn, I want to see the Green Ray. That's one that I've been hearing about for years, and have been. I always wanted to see more Romero before I got to that one, but I might just pull the trigger soon. Who cares, right? Yeah, I think I think you, this one this one could Romer pill anyone, dude. I think the Green Ray is powerful. <laughs> There's a 20 minute uh, conversation at a cafe in this picture that is absolutely riveting. You wonder, you just sit there realizing, what are they talking about? The one little girl we saw just there, mm-hmm. the young girl, she knows what's going on. This other guy does not. Mm-hmm. Our next film tries to get into some of the same t- territory, but not as successfully. It's Woody Allen's A Midsummer Night Sex Comedy, a light little picture. Is it okay to say, uh, instead of Sonic the Hedgehog, Sonic Who Sucks Hogs? <laughs> that's, that's great. Do you want to say that one? Uh, you, you came up with that one. Drop it on mic, please. Or... <laughs> That's yours to keep. I'll, I'll see if I want to use that one on mic or not. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Malcolm, are you ready for it? Yeah, I'm ready. Okay, cool. Welcome back to Extended Clip. Uh, before we get into Castle Freak, anything else you guys have seen this week that you want to talk about? Yeah, I've been watching a lot of movies. I've been at home. And uh, I've started watching the Oceans movies by Soderbergh. Um, never mm. seen these before. I mean, I've probably caught like 20 minutes of them while on TV. And Ocean's Eleven was real fun, a lot of fun. I really liked it, but Ocean's Twelve was really impressive to me. I love Ocean's Twelve. Ocean's Twelve was great. Where it seems like every single scene, Soderbergh just has like some sort of visual, like angle he's playing that just keeps the movie feeling fresh and fun, and is ultimately the template for uh, Magic Mike Double XL, you know, to follow with like this kind of hangout template that you get. Mm. Where and especially in like the first forty-five minutes, where like a good majority of that is just all the boys in the house drinking you know plotting and even the movie ends like on the note where they they all get together have a good time get some drinks it reminded me of the magic mike double xl ending too um so soderbergh you know it's it's you know as much as i like high flying bird and unsane it is crazy it's like he could just make hits he could make pop hits it would be kind of fun to see him do that again i i think oh oceans 12 is one of my favorite soderbergh films for like a filmmaker who I love so much for his uh, variety in his filmography and for his willingness to do, you know, low budget experiments. Mm-hmm. It is kind of funny that like one of his very best films is his most expensive one. I think it's like a hundred twenty million dollar budget on Ocean's Twelve, but every dollar is put to use. It is like an ultimate, like just movie star vehicle that mm-hmm. also has a just wonderful auteur behind it. I, I love that movie. So playful. Like, especially the part where they have uh, Tess, Julia Roberts' character, they have a plot where she impersonates Julia Roberts, and then Bruce Willis Oh, yeah, I in. love that. It's like, it's it's going a lot of places that it's just like, you, you, you know, you wouldn't even expect from like it's like some french new wave shit he's trying to do it's, yeah it's a lot of fun i was gonna say despite like the detachment of the the meta aspect of that scene uh when they're trying to pull it off and like uh bruce willis pulls out his cell phone and like calls their house or whatever yeah. uh, like that that phone call exchange that happens it's legitimately tense even though it's like a very detached comedic scene mm-hmm. you know oh, yeah. uh and i think soderbergh just like i don't know he he's we should talk about some Soderbergh on the pod. 
I'd love to. Yeah, I we haven't yet. That's wild. I know that's insane. Actually, we're fucking up. Uh, what about you, JT? Um, yeah. Uh, as I was saying earlier, I uh, am picking up Malcolm's Multiplex Minute, and thank I, you. Uh, you're welcome. I gotta I gotta help the boys out. Um, and while I didn't go to a theater because there are none open, <laughs> I saw 2020's hottest release, Sonic the Hedgehog, uh, by Jeff Fowler. Um, I don't know. <laughs> My roommates were really curious to see it, um, and it was just had just had an online release, so I was like, "Yeah, I'll, I'll tune in for a 2020 flick because there probably won't be many of them." Uh, and it was pretty dog shit awful, like the lowest of the low, <laughs> like barrel scraping, like, I don't know, video game turned movie, like pop culture shit. I mean, I'm sure you heard at a few points, um, there are like some Olive Garden, like kind of ads uh, type jokes. Uh, Sonic. I didn't know that. Uh, Sonic flosses um it's just oh, some that sounds epic uh cringe level shit james marsden is the lead uh who's not sonic he's like some shitty cop who's like trying to move out of his town a small town but sonic is trying like kind of convinces him to stay and he has absolutely no fucking charisma like one of the worst like just why i don't know it's you could at least have had some some good talent thrown in the mix to lift up sure. this deadweight script i mean that's the i mean pretty much the only highlight of this for me was like a surprisingly good jim carrey performance i uh it was nice to see him sort of goof around for a little bit i mean nothing great or anything uh but i don't know like just some some dumb broad 90s style shtick uh but yeah avoid it if you can folks (laughs) that seemed really cynical like the whole process of that movie just seemed like it seemed like the most cynical thing of all time like when it like just the movie itself as an object and how like they changed the animation too it's just like it seems like a a shit show yeah no i feel bad for the animators that had to work tireless hours like (laughs) repainting this sonic just because people online were pissed off that a dog shit movie was going to be dog shit anyways. And I'm just like, I don't know. It's yeah. crazy that this got even like, because I think it got like relatively decent critical press about it and like praise of it as like a fun, like children's movie. I don't remember that happening. <laughs> Did it? I thought it didn't I mean, get slaughtered. I yeah, guess, no. I, was I, guess like a bomb. So. I guess so, yeah. It's just what we needed at the time. It's, mm-hmm. it's what yeah, well, needed. you know, they they saw what the issue was with the movie and they fixed it and they made it good. <laughs> it's just that simple. Just take it take yeah. it to the booth, the editing booth. Also, <laughs> I got I got a quick uh, twelve second addition to Multiplex Minute. I watched The Way Back with uh, Ben Affleck. Oh, um, not an amazing movie, but good Ben Affleck performance, and that's the only reason the movie exists, right? So, good yeah. job, success, delivered the goods. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I had been like checking out some Steven Spielberg movies, so I decided to throw on Munich, which is one that I had heard a lot about over the years, but uh, never bothered to check out. Munich really kind of blew me away. Um, it's not 
my favorite of the recent Spielbergs that I've watched. Um, or even just in general, I, I would still say AI is better, but this might be kind of right behind that. If you don't know, uh, it's a film about uh, an Israeli, like an ex-Mossad guy who's hired to avenge the uh, killing or, you know, hostage taking and killing of 11 Israeli athletes during the 1972 Olympics in Munich. Uh, so I say ex-Mossad because what he how he gets hired is you know Israel basically says we're hiring you as like a ghost we don't have real you know contact with you and it's this kind of halfway there thing where he feels you know indebted because he's given his you know so much of his life to working for them as well and uh so he takes this mission to get teamed up with some other people contacted by Mossad to uh take out to kill the Palestinians who like uh, took the Israeli athletes hostage. And you think right away that this like being a huge blockbuster movie, there's no way this isn't just going to be like Zionist propaganda essentially, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but it's surprisingly not Uh, the Zionist organization of America ended up boycotting the film uh and like or wait is that the one who boycott there was one big organization who boycotted the film that was like a big zionist organization and called tony kushner an israel hater which is pretty funny (laughs) Um, because it is it ends up being like one of the most morally like just fucked up and ambiguous kind of things that you could get from someone like spielberg where uh, every minute of this is just like punishing and all of these killings that you're doing uh, or that you're watching these guys take out is so just like hard to watch. It's, you know, similar to kind of the feeling of when Clint is really on fire directing American Sniper, the feelings that he's able to evoke during that, where it's really just like, I don't know the the level of form that Spielberg has and his ability to immerse the viewers while keeping enough of a distance for you to, you know, think through these situations that you're in and the moral and like ethical ramifications of them. Uh, it's a really, dare I say, twisted movie. <laughs> and it also has a really weird thing at the like toward the end where uh, Eric Banya is like having sex and he's about to nut and he like has a flashback to like a terrorist shooting up a bus with a machine gun right as he's like nutting and like it cuts from the machine gun like a you know, the the flash created by that gun going off uh, like carries over when it like cuts back to in his room. It looks like the lights are like flashing while he's having sex. It's a very strange <laughs> uh, stylistically like bombastic choice by Spielberg, but it's I'll take it. I'll take weird Spielberg over overly sentimental Spielberg for sure. Yeah, of course. I feel like that era um, early 2000s. That might be, but might be my favorite Spielberg era right there. You got War of the Worlds, Minority Report, AI, which I haven't seen yet, and Munich, which oh. I haven't seen yet, but I really want to see those too. So I also watched Catch Me If You Can, and oh, that, like, one, that one is also really great. Yeah, fuck, he makes a lot of movies. This guy, this guy gets around. This guy, what is this guy? Hong Sang Soo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what they call. Uh, uh, Spielberg in cinephile circles, the American Hong Sang Soo. 
<laughs> it's well deserved. <laughs> Before we get into Castle Freak, uh, Malcolm, you picked out this double feature for us. Did you check out any other Stuart Gordon flicks while you were at it? Yeah, I did. I checked out um, From Beyond, which is his uh, immediate follow-up to his biggest hit, Reanimator. And um, you have a lot of the same uh, core people working on From Beyond that you had working on Reanimator that you have working on Castle Freak as well. Because you have Jeffrey Combs and Barbara Crampton as the two leads here with uh, Gordon behind uh the director's camera and you have a uh what is it is it charles band i oh, know i guess charles band yeah did, yeah did, that's the yeah but he didn't produce this one actually looking looking at the oh, details okay. but one of his relatives richard band did the score so the band influence is uh still felt <laughs> and it's not uh whatever is it harvest moon not harvest moon production what's that the company that made Full castle moon. freak Full moon. Full moon production, yeah. And there's there's a story behind Castle Freak and Full Moon as well that is great. But uh, with From Beyond, you have Jeffrey Combs playing a mad scientist, uh, essentially. Or, you know, um, he's normal at the beginning. He's a scientist that is turned mad by this invention his other scientist friend made that uh, allows you tra- to like traverse dimensional planes and see uh, the creatures that live amongst us. And... Um, mm-hmm. Uh, also, coincidentally, this 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 machine makes you really fucking horny too. It horny makes you <laughs> it makes it makes you want to get it on. And um, it's revealed that because people at the start of the movie, Combs and his scientist friend they activate this machine and it kills his friend. So Combs is accused of murder, but he's like, if I could recreate the experiment, like you'll see it's true. And uh, Barbara Crampton and a, another person go down there. And, you know, they see it's true. Barbara Crampton becomes obsessed with it and wants to live in it forever and uh, becomes a sex fiend herself. It's, uh, it's I mean, it's, it's this, this one's a little bit more upbeat than I would say Castle Freak is. It has, it's a little bit more fun. A lot of, like, good body horror. Like, the creatures that you see are amazing. And, like, the way they, uh, I don't know, just the way the use of orifices, <laughs> like, <laughs> things coming out of them is very, a lot of uh, vagina-like uh uh objects in the movie and uh just a lot of gross imagery and yeah it's it's a lot of fun um and i wanted to say a little something about castle freak before we get into it because i did i did a little homework i did a little homework um yeah apparently because castle freak is a direct-to-video never got released in theaters i didn't know that and um apparently stuart gordon just goes to charles band's office the full moon uh, which is a, you know, a legendary or, you know, I guess it, it is infamous in some circles, but I, I, I respect Full Moon films. You know, they've brought uh, yeah. the Puppet Master films, amongst many other things. And uh, there's just a poster for a movie called Castle Freak in Charles Band's office. And Stuart Gordon's like, what's that movie? Like, I don't I don't remember that ever coming out. And Charles Band is like, oh, it's not made yet. And it's like, do you want to make it? And like, Stuart Gordon's <laughs> like, sure. And he's, but he's like, I need, like, Stuart Gordon did this to get full control so he could do whatever he wanted to do. Because right before this, he kind of had a, a successful streak with uh, the movie Fortress, which got a lot of money. And he's yeah. he, uh, he produced Honey, I Blew Up the Kids, or Honey, I Shrunk the oh, Kids. Oh, wow. Oh, That's him. He, Honey, I Blew the Kids. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, yeah. 
very different, right? He wrote he wrote the first one and produced the second one. So he was papered up at this time. This is probably his most financially successful uh, period of his career. And he wants to go back to Full Moon. He wants to make Castle Freak, which I think is great. Damn. I think that's really awesome. I mean, because it's like that dedication to having, uh, you know, final cut and like full say over whatever happens. And it's not like he's making wonky art films either. He's just a guy who knows what the ingredients that are necessary uh-huh. in making a great horror film are. Yeah. And, you know, also, I forgot to mention, he wanted that X rating and he uses it. <laughs> That's true. This is a pretty uh, gross, messed up, twisted movie. Even the Joker would come out of this with his stomach turned upside down. <laughs> Joker has the character, the Joker. I'm not comparing the movies here, but the character, the Joker, has nothing on the Castle Freak. Castle Freak's really good. Oh, through no. It. Oh no! I people are talking about being Jokerified and stuff. Like I'm Castle Freakified. Yeah, I'm I'm a Castle Freak. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Castle Freak is as I posted on Twitter earlier. Castle Freak is low key nasty with it, and you know anyone who disagrees is frankly like scared of their own sexuality. So. <laughs> yeah, Castle Freak is kind of um, is showing you know different forms of sexuality in a in a way. <laughs> it's not exactly positive, but at the time you got to consider the representation <laughs> for all the well, depraved it, castle freaks for all, for the sexually depraved. This one's for you. <laughs> um, so as we get into it here, castle freak came out in 1995 and it's a film where uh, you get a nice little cold open of the, the, the duchess who used to own this titular castle uh, feeding just like what looks like some sort of prisoner that she keeps in her basement uh, two pieces of salami and some moldy ass bread every day and then we get the opening titles Stuart gordon's castle freak very ominous and then we meet our nuclear family who is the core of this film um you got barbara crampton jeffrey combs and you have their daughter who is blind and they're pulling up to the house w- that they inherited by some weird loophole that uh, the dad thought was a scam, but they're just going to go anyway. And it's one of those horror movies where, like, sometimes you just kind of have to go along with whatever logic they're presenting in order to get to the good stuff. You know? Oh, mm-hmm. you, you absolutely love it. It is such a classic-ass setup. It's, you have to, you, you get a castle, but you have to stay in it overnight. And it may or may not be haunted. <laughs> It's fucking great. (laughs) And it like, I was surprised with like, I mean, we get like a little bit of like uh, the Duchess bringing out the whips in the beginning too, but like just how fucking down and dirty we actually get with Castle Freaks. It's yeah, we're we're freaked out. Stuart Gordon is a motherfucking freak. Like uh, he's (laughs) a, he's a freaky guy. There's a lot of weird sex shit in his movies. Somebody like somebody even argued too much, but I mean, Castle Freak, I mean, you could, I wouldn't want to water down any of this. It's all, it's all pure, raw, nasty, dude. Just, just how Extended yeah. Clip likes it. We like it nasty. <laughs> so, uh, to get right into the nastiness of it, uh, we see that, uh, the relationship at the core of this nuclear family is, uh, suffering to say the least. When they meet their housekeeper, they ask for a separate room to be made up for the father. Uh, they do not sleep together. It's been, you know, nine months since, like, she touched him or whatever, as he says. 
and then we get that flashback after he gets rejected from sex with his wife of why their family is so fucked up. And it is because he was drunk driving and killed their five-year-old son and blinded their daughter uh, in an accident. And, you know, this brought to mind another horror film that people really love that I don't like, uh, Hereditary. Now, Hereditary uses a car accident that beheads a small girl in the beginning of the movie as, like, the traumatic incident that informs the rest of the movie. And this also does that, you know, uh, through a flashback. That traumatic incident kind of sets up where these characters are at. But I think it's just, like, the difference in uh, level of filmmaking, I guess, and what route each film takes in terms of how it exploits that trauma for the rest of the runtime. No, yeah. I mean, the Hereditary is dealing it with, like, dealing with a very, like, you know, upper middle class kind of, like, staunch family household where it's, like, a lot of emotions probably go unsaid and, like, the trauma that follows that and, like, so-and-so, like, dread. You know, some people call it dread um, in Hereditary that is, like, supposed to... You're supposed, it's supposed to be a result of all this tension where it's the characters and well, I guess Jeffrey Combs specifically, he'll, he just, he, he gets right into the depravity. He be, you know, he gets just as freaky as some of the freakier people in this movie. Oh yeah. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's crazy. He's like, he's a drunk. He cheats on his wife. It's like, he's, he's down and dirty there and a hidden layer to the terrifying nature of him killing their son for me was that, uh, the son is named JJ, and at points in the film, it sounded like Jeffrey Combs is calling out JT. It's uh, <laughs> spooky stuff. <laughs> Am I your dead son? Yeah, you could have been that. You were one letter away from being that <laughs> boy, JT. Um, so as the film goes on, they you know it, it's a haunted house movie. What do you think is going to happen? They slowly explore the house and learn about the dangers that lie within as they go. Uh, the blind daughter uh, finds the the titular castle freak, who is a, a young boy, or was a young boy, <laughs> who they thought was dead and left to die, but in fact the Duchess was keeping as her prisoner and barely keeping him alive for all these years. So he is just like roaming around the castle, freaking everybody out. Uh, he like walks into the bedroom of the daughter and like starts touching her and taking off her blanket and stuff like that. And that's what really, you know, winds up the father who after, you know, it's one of those classic horror movies where it's like people uh, witness the monster and then nobody believes them until mm -hmm. it's too late kind of thing, which, hey, that's a success. That's a recipe for success in my book. No, definitely. I mean, there's some conventional setups here, but I think the way it's shot to the like um, Stuart Gordon, of course, but Jeffrey Combs and Barbara Crampton are incredible actors and are, you know, definitely yeah. underrated. You know, you know, they're some of the best horror actors of all time in my book just as someone oh my god yeah of people who've like kind of stayed in that genre and like there's some like stuff that might seem kind of like melodramatic or just wouldn't exactly work with lesser actors but jeffrey combs knows how to choose scenery and he knows that he's he should be a star like it's it's a yeah. shame that he's 
not more well known. Oh my God. I love it when he's spiraling after, you know, the, the cops come after they report some freakiness going on and the cops don't do anything. And then his wife isn't believing him. And he, he walks out and goes and gets drunk and picks up a, uh, a sex worker and brings her back to the castle and uh, has sex with her. And then she gets uh, mauled by the castle freak and truly one of the most gruesome things in the film and in any film that I've seen probably for the last few months at least. Yeah. The castle freak really goes off on her. And you see no, his yeah. dirty old sack too. It's like yeah. in one oh of... Oh my God, ugh. his dickless balls. <laughs> we, see, we see the castle freak's dickless balls for like five minutes in this movie. You get, he's like running around. You you assume that the Duchess must have yeah taken the scissors to them at some point, but yeah. like it's it's fucked up. Yeah, I love that because it's like just thinking of the like the production of it is just like it's like we need the mutilated dick on the costume. Like it's not gonna be <laughs> yeah, the, it's not going to show up in one scene. It's not going to be like a one thing. It's like he's going to run around the house, and you're going to see his his dickless balls flop about. Um, yeah, and that scene that you're talking about with the prostitute, the castle freak watches Jeffrey Combs uh, fuck this prostitute. He watches him yeah. suck the nipples. He watches him eat the pussy. And then he tries to recreate these things himself, but uh, I'm sure he's not very well sexually educated. So instead of, you know, um, eating it in that way, he just literally eats it. And it's gross. Yeah, like when he tries to replicate kissing with her at first, the castle freak that is, he just like puts his hand in her mouth pretty much. Like he's just, you know, uh, it's gordon and company's take on what the like sexual pathology of someone who was locked up as a kid until they were an adult would be and it's a very frightening one (laughs) also i should say in terms of uh as we were kind of if we're in anyone's pov in this one because it's like it's not like jeffrey combs is a character to identify with gordon goes out of his way to make the whole film about how much of a piece of shit he is, uh, which I love. I, I think that's a phenomenal aspect of this film, but the only character we get POV shots from are the castle freak. And that's kind of, you know, a traditional horror thing with like slashers and stuff at least. But while we're watching that scene of him having sex with the prostitute, it, I, I couldn't help but think he was being maybe a bit over generous in terms of going down on a prostitute uh, i'm not used to seeing that in movies but... no. <laughs> no yeah gordon i think this movie in particular um people were kind of well maybe not at the time but in like rediscovering because i don't know if there were people watching Stuart gordon like Stuart gordon movies in the mid-90s being like he went too far but like um yeah <laughs> there's a gratuity to these scenes and there's i mean here, let's be honest here let's be honest here the reason, part of the reason why it's so good is the perverse pleasure Stuart Gordon takes in all of these acts. I mean, like, oh some, yeah, for some, sure. Something like um, when at the beginning, where the castle freak is locked up in the cage and he has shackles on, and he has to bite off his own thumb, break it off, just gnaw it off, basically, so that he could get the shackle off. I mean, it's it's overly gratuitous, and it's you know, it's really just Gordon being reveling in the dirt, rolling in the mud, just being a a, a pig, but and, you know. <laughs> But but we love it, and that's what we, we that's what we tune in for. No, it's like literally the the thesis of the podcast could be drawn in like the comparison of the attention to detail that Eric Romare gives his you know conversationalist characters versus the attention to detail that Stuart Gordon puts into gore practical effects in his horror movies. You know, 
Mm-hmm. It's the, both of them are equally pleasant. <laughs> and I feel like in like really engaging and immersing you in that world of dirty, grimy gore, I feel like it creates a much more complicated film because your allegiances are with the castle freak, where it's like you understand and sympathize with like why someone who was abused his whole life does not even know uh, language um, would yeah. just wind up with these weird sexual and violent pathologies. And it's like, like you see you're horrified and like entertained by the gratuity of it all, but you can like still at the end of the day, so much of the narrative hinges on like, like the deep pity you feel for him. Yeah. So as he continues to wreak havoc throughout the castle, uh, the titular freak uh, scares some more people and then the dad gets arrested for murder uh, or at least on suspicion as the sex worker is uh, still missing. Yeah. And then uh, he ends up breaking out of prison. There's a really great like 15 minute segment because it then intercuts between the police station and the castle for a while. And there's a really great uh, anti-cop like 10 minutes or so where you see the castle freak uh, devour both of the cops that are stationed at the castle (laughs) to watch the two women. And then you watch uh, Jeffrey Combs take the baton to the head of the sheriff who's like investigating him one on one. Uh, And that's pretty cool. So then Jeffrey Combs flees there to go back to the castle. And you think maybe you're getting a too traditional ending where, you know, the patriarchy will be restored and he'll come back and rescue his wife and daughter. But instead, you get a gruesome finale uh, that we actually I got a little ahead of myself because that's, you know, I talked about the intercutting of those two scenes what was going on at the castle, obviously more important as the castle freak then, you know, gets a hold of the daughter and Barbara Crampton chasing after those two uh, is one of the great, like most suspenseful moments of this movie. Oh, absolutely. And um, like the way the way uh, Barbara Crampton like seduces the castle freak just um, gets into like the button shirt open, you know, cleavage position that her daughter's currently in. It's just like, yeah, it just keeps the dirtiness going. Even, you know, but Barbara Crampton saves the day for now. Let her go! Take me. Come on! Take me! Yeah, no, I actually really loved that moment. It was a little weird, but like, I don't know. I think when you've been around horror films and like these structures, as long as Stuart Gordon, you start to just like play with the formulas a little bit mm-hmm. and you get that classic slasher type moment toward the end where the monster and the girl are like looking at each other. And even though she's blind, that's like the first layer of, you know, uh, changing the traditional formula of it. And then, uh, the mom of the character who's Barbara Crampton, who, you know, earlier in this generation of horror films was that young girl mm-hmm. uses her sexuality to distract the monster. But also in this like X rated going for everything film, she doesn't even, you know, take her shirt off. It's just that little nudge of unbuttoning. That's <laughs> enough to get her daughter away from the crazy monster. You know, like it's yeah. such a weird sequence, but it's so like, 
detail oriented and dense uh like all the things that gordon is paying attention to in the scene are things that you think about when you watch these movies that have the same generic structure over and over again you know yeah yeah and you know kind of um not really a little bit tangential here but there's that kind of speech that the daughter gives about what her first boyfriend will be and how you know he's going to be a great person because <laughs> he won't care that i'm blind or whatever and then you know with that perfect sense of uh movie magic irony who shows up but the castle freak the one that could appre- <laughs> the one who could appreciate her you know even dis- yeah. despite her disability and it's perfect because she can't see him and his um his gray skin and protruding rib cage and um exposed jaw it's a great it's a great <laughs> it's a great costume design i love the castle freak himself and i love how yeah. it does the, it's a classic horror thing but we don't get a, a full look at him until maybe a little bit past halfway in the movie and uh just makes those scenes more effective those where he's just butt ass naked hauling his ass <laughs> hauling his ass upstairs <laughs> just chasing after these dressed like a ghost in a sheet yeah, I was going to say, doing some great stealth action when he's in the sheet, like when uh, the dad is looking for him and he's using his uh, daughter's blanket to pretend to be just like furniture. Uh, that is fantastic. I was thinking while I watched both of these movies that they could both be adapted into really good stealth video games. Ooh. <laughs> I'm intrigued. Uh, just. Yeah, the middle segment of just like following and watching from Aviator's Wife, and then obviously there's uh, there's gaming potential in Castle Freak. <laughs> yeah, Aviator's Wife hitting a PS5 pretty soon. Yeah, Aviator's Wife happened. RPG. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, those text-based RPGs, and it's a Romare film, so we're just choosing from different blocks of dialogue. <laughs> Finally, finally, video games for people like us, right? Finally, we're being candid to. <laughs> um, so then you get the just wonderful climax of this film where it, the rain is pouring and the four central characters uh, are on the rooftop as the dad has come back to the castle and is trying to stave off the castle freak from his wife and daughter. And the only way he can get rid of him is to... Uh, chain himself to the castle freak and throw himself off the top of the castle killing both of them uh yeah. and make sure to get a nice i love you into his wife before uh he croaks which is always a nice movie moment you know yeah and it like mm-hmm. also harkens back to the moment early in the film where no one is believing uh combs about the castle freak where he's like contemplating suicide off the off the castle then too yeah, yeah. That, that's a great scene the scene you're mentioning jt because like there's like these the drama in this movie is like super bleak and sad and really kind of matches like, um, you know, the, the visual of like living inside this mansion. It is like a dark movie and you're moving through a lot of like dark rooms and like kind of like, um, you know, strange shadow formations that you get living in a house like that. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it all coalesces together into a, you know, a nice freaky product. Um, yeah, I I loved this movie honestly. Like the first 30 minutes or so are deceptively kind of obvious, you know, the the haunted house setup that's kind of obligatory as you meet, you know, the spooky Italian housekeeper who keep who cooks pasta for them and your mother and you are the signora and signorina of the castello 
I'm the housekeeper. Later gets devoured by the castle freak. Uh, it seems like it's all a little too obvious. And then once the actual scares start kicking in, you realize that just like on a technical level, Gordon is just like really good at constructing uh, suspenseful scenes. And this thing ends up just moving along really fast and maintaining suspense and having some really interesting setups uh, with like the staging and the lighting in the, uh, you know, downstairs areas of the uh, of the castle. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I'm going to go uh, four bullets on this one. I, I like it pretty much as much as reanimator. I, I really love this one. No. Oh, yeah. This this movie's great. I mean, there's such a unique depravity towards it, right? That like just makes Stuart Gordon stand out amongst you know even some of the better gore fetishists of like this horror era, and um, yeah, he just there's certain ingredients that he brings to the movie that keeps it fresh, and I think uh, part of that is definitely developing you know a directorial act- actor relationship with Jeffrey Combs and Barbara Crampton, um, you know, another great hit out of the park. I think the three movies they made together, Reanimator, This, and From Beyond, all all fucking bangers, all classics. Four bullets. What about you, JT? Um, yeah, I'm also gonna give this uh, four bullets. I think that I mean, even the non-horror scenes in this movie really pop off with what we were saying earlier about uh, Combs's like almost suicide attempt. But the scene in the bar where he is picking up the prostitute to take her back to the castle that scene is just so wretchedly pathetic and like dark (laughs) and like oh dark in like a weird way that just like perfectly fits in with the rest of the pieces of the film and like again like malcolm said at the beginning of talking about castle freak combs is firing on all fucking cylinders and he delivers like such a great drunk performance there and also i feel like uh the Castle Freak is a, a, a great cautionary tale uh, for our time in quarantine because it's uh, <laughs> you leave a man locked in a room in a house for long enough. He's going to develop a lot of weird sexual impulses. And I can al- already see myself uh, freakifying. <laughs> <laughs> Um, oh, I was I was turning into the Castle Freak that scene when Castle Freak was watching the sex scene. I was like, oh shit! Like, come, like <laughs> Combs, like they really it was really they really went for it. Like, yeah, if, if you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, it's it's crazy in that regard, and like I really love the very ending too. I should say. Uh, I didn't mention this where like after that, you know, you get a classic horror movie day after where the cops are pulling up to the house where everything went down the night before. Uh, And like the last glance of this movie, uh, you get Barbara Crampton with her daughter, now a widow and the daughter who just has a single mother, you know, and they look across the driveway and you see the cop that Jeffrey Combs had beat over the head. And he has the the child of the prostitute that the yeah. uh, that the castle freak killed. And they just have this like mutual look of just like loneliness on their face. Uh, and it's a really great way to cap off like a kind of more serious movie than I was expecting, especially with how it started, you know, like it it ended up being really like harrowing, honestly, (laughs) even though it still had some violence that 
uh, I would say just pleased me in the way that general, you know, schlock cinema does. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's what like, like Combs and Crampton are able to hit these emotional notes and like Gordon has so much trust in them to do so that it, you get scenes like that, that you might not get in other direct to video horror movies released at the time. Like, uh, yeah. I really wish Combs got like a seventies, like single protagonist, like uh, fucking five easy pieces style movie where he could just show off his shops. <laughs> like that'd be sick. Also. Yeah. The gore in this movie, like best practical effects we've, done for the pot or that i've seen doing this podcast for quite a long time I and mean, we don't we don't do much like gore centric films but yeah definitely gets the uh extended clip real gore award <laughs> <laughs> no cgi in this movie <laughs> <laughs> yeah they they didn't fake anything they really killed people <laughs> yeah <laughs> um you can always email us at extendedclippodcast at gmail.com. We got one this week from Ryan Kelly email. Uh, it The subject is dual wielding Gran Torino. It says, hey guys, got a good one for you this week. Imagine Bill and Hillary Clinton circa 2008 having sex with each other. Okay, now imagine you have to be one of them for the duration of the act. You basically have to mind swap. Who you got? I'm, I'm going Bill. I'm going Bill. <laughs> I'm Hillary. <laughs> you trying to see what Bill's got? No, I think like Hillary is like uh, she's she has the power in the situation. I think I uh, doubt I doubt they are fucking. So it's more about power for you, JT. It always is. Yeah. Well, then you know what they say about it is like it's not really about sex; it's about power. <laughs> you cut out there, but I'm pretty sure I know what you said. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna think about this one until next week. <laughs> it's just, it deserves your thought. It deserves your contemplation. <laughs> um, you can always reach out to us also on Twitter at extendedclip69. Uh, I'm at iPod underscore video. I'm at Bitchface Palace. I'm at Tallboy Thin Legs. Ooh, starting to lose my voice there at the end. I do not have the coronavirus. I repeat, I do not have the coronavirus. Uh-oh. Um, Pray for him. We will be back still in quarantine mode next week. And uh, you know what? I don't have the double feature picked out, but we'll let you know. We'll get back to you on that. <laughs> yeah. Okay, bye. Like, you can just hit the space button. Yeah, alright. Alright, ready? Mm-hmm. Three, two, one. <laughs>